Hey, this is Jay the Chocolate Man from Addy, Washington. Go Google that. Listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great to be back with you today. This is Ray, and today I am joined by one of my favorite, absolute favorite authors. And I'm not just saying that. I know I recommend a lot of books here on the program, and I know that we have a lot of authors on here, but for a long time, I have wanted to get together with Dr. Lee Camp from Lipscomb University. Um, Lee actually wrote the book Mere Discipleship, which in my mind is one of the absolute best books on Christian discipleship in print today. I have loved that book for several years, recommended it to all sorts of different people. And after moving to Nashville, one of the first things I thought about was, oh goodness, I have got to get together with Lee Camp and see if we can record a podcast. And he was gracious enough to take the time to sit down with me and talk in his office at Lipscomb University. What a fabulous conversation. I could have talked to Lee for 10 hours straight easily, and hopefully we can have some more conversations in the future as we live pretty close. But this conversation, it's short, but it's power-packed. I think you're really going to enjoy it. While Lee's book, Mere Discipleship, is one that I highly recommend, another one that he's written that just came out in the last couple of years is called Who is My Enemy? And it is fantastic. Um, it's talking... That kind of the on the surface is talking about questions that Americans, American Christians must face about Islam. But the the next part of it is the important part and themselves. What questions they must face about Islam and themselves and themselves <laughs> is really the important part of it. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about in today's show. So let's hit that roller coaster and let's jump right into the conversation with Lee Camp. I am happy to be joined with Lee Camp. We've had a hard time getting together. We, we have. We live in the same town, but it's <laughs> tough. <laughs> Schedules are tough to yes. your schedule, my schedule, and I'm just so glad to be joined by I'm you today. I'm grateful to get to visit with you, right? Welcome to Beyond the Box. Um, Lee, you've written a couple of books that have really impacted me, uh, the most recent of which is Who is My Enemy, which um, you're talking a lot about questions of Islam versus Christianity and how we've how we've made this us versus them mentality yeah. in the church. Uh -huh. And yet it seems like that while that's kind of the, the pretext of the book, that the subtext is much deeper as yeah. far as what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I know you've studied under John Howard Yoder. Right. Talk a little bit about how that's impacted your outlook on nonviolence and following Jesus. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's impacted me a great deal. Um, you know, I started thinking about, questions about nonviolence when I was in seminary at Abilene Christian and started reading John Howard Yoder 
Um, but I, I don't think that I had really ever felt altogether convinced about it until actually I was in a class with John Howard Yoder at Notre Dame. It was probably like in my second year maybe of um, studies at Notre Dame in my PhD program. And I remember one day in class, it just one something just clicked, and I thought, if I really do believe the gospel, then this seems to follow simply as a very much a matter of course. And uh, it kind of hit me that no longer was it like an issue, as much as it was that nonviolence was no longer just simply an issue in Christian ethics. It was like integral uh, or essential to the very meaning of the cross. That that. Um, a theology of nonviolence is itself an interpretation of the gospel, mm. um, and that interpretation made sense to me, and it all fell fell together. Uh, and so it's been you know years in unfolding what that looks like or means for my life, but it very much uh, was influenced by my experience with Yoder. Yeah, I, I know uh, in reading Mere Discipleship, I really felt like in a lot of ways that was like an updated. Um, easier to read yeah. politics of Jesus, <laughs> yeah. which I loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the, um, the intent in writing that book, actually it came uh, from, uh, there were a number of us who were graduate students who were uh, visiting after John's memorial service. He died late December of 1997. And so there were a number of us graduate students, his, graduate students of his who were visiting over dinner after his memorial service. And Laurel Jordan had said something to us about how she had thought about doing something like a, a mere Christianity uh, grounded in Yoder's theology. Mm, mm. And I was intrigued by that. And um, so when I moved back to the Bible Belt and saw all the ways in which kind of nationalism and, and the gospel, people were trying to conflate those, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, we really need something like that. And so I had remembered Laurel's idea and asked her, I said, could I take a stab at that? And she said, well, of course, certainly. And so in time it, it yielded that particular book. And so I was trying to make um, a very kind of provocative, in-your-face, uh, maybe not in-your-face, but certainly provocative kind of uh, telling of that theology that was grounded in my own frustrations with Bible Belt Christianity. Yeah. Well, I know in, in reading The Politics of Jesus, I often thought to myself, man, I would love to recommend this book to people, but honestly it was just such a difficult read, yeah. you know, that I was yeah. like, this is a this is a tough recommend, you know. Right, yeah. But when your book came along, I think it really filled a gap in really presenting. Because, like you, I've come to believe that um, nonviolence is not a side issue, but it's really maybe maybe even I would say the heart of the gospel in love and nonviolence that that's who God is. Um, so yeah, your book really filled a niche, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's been very. Um gratifying to see the ways it's uh, spoken to so many people and mm. it's been great to hear from folks through the years out of that. In uh, writing your most recent book and Who is Your Enemy, I know you talked some in the intro about that, about kind of what the impetus for that was, some conversations you'd yeah. had, some different remarks. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, I had <laughs> I had, <laughs> I had done this uh, lecture uh, on campus. It was upstairs in this building where we're sitting right now. Uh, it was an interfaith dialogue day, you know, where we had people from different faiths on campus. And, and my assignment was to do uh, a theological rationale for interfaith dialogue. Mm-hmm. That is, if you take your Christian faith seriously, what, what kind of theological considerations are there for having interfaith dialogue? Mm-hmm. 
And so I did this lecture, I did my thing, and I kind of did my kind of non-Constantinian, Yodarian sort of <laughs> thing, you know. And uh, that afternoon, I got a call from a reporter at, at my home, and uh, she was intrigued by what I said. And I could tell she was intrigued, but I could also tell she was having a hard time kind of really making sense of what I said. And so we talked for some length of time, and at the... The next morning, I got up early, and it's not my habit to read the, the morning paper, but I thought, you know, the self-centered kind of, <laughs> I thought, well, I'll go see what they said, you know, some story I sent buried in page, section D, page 12, you know. And so I went out to the end of the driveway, and I picked up the paper, and on the front cover, the front page, top fold, oh, my. the headline said something like, Theologian says Christians must let go beliefs to get along with Muslims. Oh my and, goodness! <laughs> so I, you know, I said, "What out, you say and then I, what they hear?" Right? I, I, I said out loud, "I hope that's not talking about me." <laughs> and then I read the first paragraph, and sure enough, there was my name. You oh know. my! And it was, uh, it, it basically made it sound like I had suggested we should let go of the claim of the Lordship of Jesus to get along with Muslims. Which I had I had used that as a rhetorical question, but it became in the in the story kind of what I was asserting, and um, and so I went in and told my wife. I said, you know, this is going to be a long day, <laughs> and uh, by the time I got to school, I was sitting here at about seven forty-five, and the, the departmental assistant knocked on the door and she said, "Talk radio is on uh, online, such and so want to talk to you," and I said, "No, no." And uh, then I got a call from the president's office and said, come, oh, come over goodness. here, we're getting calls from all over the place. So make a very long story short, you know, by, by 1030 that morning, um, I had had a call from Fox News in New York City and <laughs> Detroit Talk Radio. And a student later told me that the local rap station had held a, uh, a call-in survey and had, had found me stupid by a wide margin. You know? Oh, wow. <laughs> and, wow. You know, and I got emails from... Some right-wing blog, uh, kind of Islamophobic blog, had picked up the story, and they had put out my telephone number and email address. And, and uh, oh, so, bless their hearts! So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. So by the end of the day, you know, I'd gotten emails from from L.A. to Manhattan to Tel Aviv to oh, New my Zealand, goodness. and called every name you can imagine. And uh, so that kind of began this this quest of, of trying to understand what was at the heart of that kind of lashing out in fear. Mm. And I didn't know, I did not know a great deal about Islam and I had not made the claim that I did. Uh, so I started digging around trying to learn a bit more and you know, ended up getting a grant and traveled to the Middle East for a while one summer and studying, writing and thinking. And so the who is my enemy is the result of that, uh, wow. that research and that work. Wow. So it's the result of your own scapegoating, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> you, you talk about in the book, um, this this was a quote that I just I found really helpful. In my own experience, a theology of the cross is what very often drives the rhetoric of certainty and being offended. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is it that the cross is becomes this tool of of uh, offense, not in the way that Paul talks about, yeah, but in our own being offended at others. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I, I um, that's um, there is something about uh, certainty about the way we understand certain doctrines that we have this kind of sense that uh, even though we have this claim about. Uh, 
uh, being saved by grace and so forth, there seems to be some sort of sense of um, certainty that if we don't hold on to certain understandings of that, and, and uh, then all is lost, and, and so we take this posture of offense. And uh, it does seem to me that one of the great dangers in uh, the Christian faith getting co-opted right now in contemporary culture is getting caught up in the, in the way in which we just polarize everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, offense seems to be... Uh, it's almost like we've, we've, we're at this place where if we're not easily offended, it's like we don't have any sort of moral fiber or something. We don't have any convictions. We don't have any convictions. Wow, yeah, Yeah. wow. And so offense kind of becomes this kind of badge of conviction somehow. Mm. And uh, so it's, you know, just trying to find a place out of a theology of the cross that allows us to practice a humility that, of course, we have certain basic root convictions. Um, but it's, you know, I, I'm grounded in this kind of so-called neo-Anabaptist strand, and one of the things that Jim McClendon says in his in his systematic theology when he starts out with Volume One on ethics is he says that one of the one of the key marks of a little b Baptist theology is uh, a, the principle of fallibility. Wow! Uh, and that we have this commitment to the fact that we may be wrong. And so we're always having to be willing to listen to the other and listen to how the other's bearing witness to what they believe to be true uh, rather than asserting infallibility, Mm -hmm. but asserting, you know, yeah, we may be wrong. We need to listen again and listen again and listen again and listen again. That requires this great patient listening uh, that I think changes our posture. You you talk about in the book uh, on that, in that regard, Double vision, having double yeah. vision. Talk some about that. Yeah, I I, uh, I really uh, uh, like very much Miroslav Wolf's idea there of, of double vision, and of course I, I take it from his book Exclusion Embrace, which is a wonderful book. And uh, Wolf doesn't mean by double vision. Uh, it, it, in some ways, the term is unhelpful, you know. But it gets if you're patient with him to figure out what he means by this, it's very helpful. You know, he doesn't mean by that kind of not seeing clearly or being confused. He means um, we believe what we believe. We believe very firmly our convictions, otherwise they're not convictions. You know, we believe what we believe, we believe what we believe about justice, we believe what we believe about truth and so forth. But that um, the gospel requires us to also seek as best we are able to see it from the perspective of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so we the double meaning double vision meaning we have our vision of how we understand it, and then we try to see it from the perspective of the so-called enemy to mm-hmm. see how they see it, and that's dangerous at one level because you know it's it's um it can become an excuse for tolerating grave injustice, uh, for excusing grave injustice, but that's not the way he intends it at all. It, it's that instead this notion that at the foot of the cross we all we all have been co-opted into theologically this notion that we all killed God when God became incarnate in mm. our midst. Mm. And thus the, the notion of the enemies of God is all of us, not that group over there versus us group over here, but all of us. Uh, yet as enemies of God, God died for us mm. uh, in Christ. And so at the foot of the cross then, we, we're freed and liberated to try to see things from the other's perspective. Mm. And then perhaps 
out of that double vision, we might see things we couldn't see otherwise yeah. that might contribute to some possibility or space for reconciliation mm-hmm. uh, with the other. And so that was that's the tack I took in the book was trying to ask ourselves, ask myself the question, you know, what are some things that might be helpful for me to see yeah. from the perspective of the Muslim? Yeah, uh, because you know we all know, you know, as American Christians, what we see of the of the so-called Muslim. Right. Um, but, you know, what is it that the Muslim might see that I don't see? Mm. Blind what, spots. So yeah, blind speak. spots. And moreover, mm. it, it's not simply an exercise in, you know, being uh, some, you know, stereotypical, um, uh, you know, soft, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, you know. Instead, what I, what I discovered was that that exercise actually helped me understand and deepen my appreciation for my own faith mm. in a way that I could not have gotten to had I not been willing to read the Quran and had wow. not, I not been willing to talk to the Muslim because wow. I did and, it, and it, it, it did deepen my own faith and it deepened my fascination with the beautiful story of the gospel mm. and how different it is from mm. Islam and other kind of ways of construing and seeing the world. Wow. It seems like so many times in talking about loving our enemies mm-hmm. that we want to love them but not listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> and those things, that, you know, we really, they're mutually exclusive. You can't you can't love someone if you're not willing to sit down and listen with them. I'm, yeah. I remember um, working in a Christian bookstore for all these years. I remember um, talking to, there was a UPS driver that would always kind of take the the hardline conservative stance, yeah. you know, and, and I was always kind of pushing back against that. And we'd have great conversations, but he was, uh, we were talking about homosexuality at one point in time. And he talked about, um, <laughs> he was basically talking about how we love those people, but it was kind of like at arm's length. Yeah. And we, as we got to talking, it was like, he didn't even know anybody that was gay. Yeah. So, and it, it just, I find that so more and more as I've developed in this and, and tried to understand what it means to love our enemies, I'm realizing I can't say I love my enemy if I'm not willing to sit down and listen. Yeah. So I, I yeah. think you're right on. I think yeah. you're right on. Um, you talk about in the book, and, and this is, of course, you can verify this all over the place, but the fact that for the first three centuries of the church that we really, um, that, that the church was nonviolent, that military participation was, was not only... Um, discouraged but it was kind of a it was kind of a first time that anyone had ever been killed for refusing to serve in the military yeah at least Roland Mayton the, the Yale historian says that um, that prior to the advent of Christianity there was no known historical uh, records of someone being killed for a refusal of military service. Mm, mm. And so it's this remarkable kind of new historical specimen, if you will, mm. with the rise of Christianity. Um, a slight nuance to what you just said. It, it is true that all of the, uh, as, as far as I know and as far as you know, people have documented this, there are no known extant early Christian sources in which when the discussion is raised, do Christians participate in war, in which they ever said it was legitimate. Mm. They mm. always say, we Christians don't do that. Caesar calls us to this, Jesus calls us to this. Yeah. Caesar calls us to this, Jesus calls us to this. And so there, there was this consistent, this is not what we Christians do. Yeah. Now there were Christians, there, it's clear, there are clear records that Christians were in the military by at least 180 AD. There was a, a famous Roman legion that had Christians in it. 
at least by 180. Uh, but that being said, still, the, the consistent teaching of the church fathers was this is not what we Christians do. Yeah. In, in saying that, you know, so many times, and you bring this up in the book, I've heard the argument that that was more of a, it was a strategic thing or it was a practical thing yeah. that that the only reason that Christians didn't do that is because they were the ones without the power. Yeah. But once they got the power and, you know, God blessed them with the power of the state, that they were able to take up the sword and, you know, defend the the, the widow and defend right. the orphan and all these kind of things. Yeah, that is, that is commonly uh, the case that is made. And uh, though I don't talk about this in the book, uh, I think you can make this this fascinating parallel. I'm going to try to do this in two parts, so make sure I come to back, back to part B. <laughs> you, you can make this, this fascinating parallel that if you go back and you look at the way Eusebius, who's writing after the rise of Constantine, the way he talks about the nonviolence of the early church is the same way the Muslim historians talk about the nonviolence of Muhammad mm. in mm. Uh, Mecca. Because mm. you remember, in the early the earliest days in the rise of Islam, uh, Muhammad teaches non-retaliation in Mecca. Right. Then when he moves to Medina and he begins to have more political power there, he begins to say, no, it's, it's right and good for us to practice retaliation because practicing retaliation is the way to check Injustice. Mm. Well, Eusebius does a similar kind of move after the rise of Constantine. And so it's like, I remember one day I was at home and I realized I, I just threw up my head. Oh my goodness, I can't believe the parallel that's being made here. Wow. But, but, the, but here, part B of my answer is that um, this was, for many of the early church fathers, it was clearly not simply a strategic move. Um, I mean, the strategic interpretation makes sense because sure. it's like, why would you want to serve in the military of an empire that was persecuting you? Right. You know, exactly. it, it makes no sense whatsoever for us to do that. But if you go back and you look at the arguments that they are making, they are grounded in their understanding of the gospel. Here's, here's, here's I think, one of the clearest examples of that. Um, you know, some of the early uh, non-believing Jews, that is, Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, and some of the pagan critics of the early church uh, insisted that the early Christians were stupid mm. because uh, that you know they said you know uh, Celsus, the pagan critic, second century, he said you people are idiots because he said if you go back and you read your own prophets, the prophets say that when the Messiah comes, the nations will learn war no more. Mm. The nations still are practicing war. So it's clear that Jesus could not have been the Messiah. It's a mm. brilliant critique of mm. the church, you know. Wow. And it's fat, you know. It's well. When I read that critique, I thought, man, that's you know, that's a really good critique. Yeah. But but one day I was reading a John Driver's little book. I think. Um, Is the that the How Christians Made Peace with War? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and he has this little couple of paragraphs where he alludes to this, and he says that um, the early church fathers had an answer to this, and. Um, and so I started looking at his footnotes. I was at, I was actually in the uh, the Divinity School Library at Vanderbilt this day when I was working there. So I started pulling off all that Ananising Fathers and pulling out this stuff. And I was just overcome with their answer. Their answer was, um, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. And the reason he was the Messiah is he said that if you look at uh, the church, that the church comprises people of every tribe, every tongue, who used to make war with each other. Mm, but mm. they've been baptized and they no longer make war with each other and they learn war no more. Wow. The, the nonviolent church was the apologetic for wow. Jesus being Messiah. 
Wow. And I just, you know, it was, it was again, it was another revelatory oh, moment. Oh, no way. <laughs> now, but here, of course, is the frightening part is that if, if the nonviolent church was the apologetic for Jesus being Messiah, mm. and yet today the church is divided by nation state, mm. um, you know, we, wow. we have not been able to learn to rise above allegiance to the nation state. And we do make war with each other now. And so that kind of apologetic defense for the Messiahship of Jesus um, is lost in dangerous ways Hmm. by a church torn by the nation state. Um, which is also something interesting about Islam is that in, in Islam there's this very strong emphasis upon the, the Ummah, the worldwide fellowship of Muslims, in which, which many of the Muslims are very insistent upon the fact that uh, the nation state does not trump uh, participation in those who proclaim uh, proclaim the one God. And so it's... it's uh, so another one of those things Christians might learn from Muslims is that no, we really do need to find a way to make sure that our allegiance to Christ in baptism trumps every other sort of allegiance. Wow. Man, that is so good. That's wild stuff. That's it? wild yeah. stuff. <laughs> that is good. In, uh, in talking about this, it really gets down, and we talked about this at the beginning, the politics of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yoder's use of the politics of Jesus. Define politics and how you see the movement of Jesus as not at all apolitical, but rather very political. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a temptation, and I know this is this is something that people hear from me, and I'm still kind of in my thought process on this. But you know, in many ways, I've tried to withdraw from any kind of participation in government and things like that. You know, I mean, just as a personal choice, I don't vote, or mm-hmm. you know, all these kinds of things. And that's, this is just me in my experiments with truth, I guess, like Gandhi. But anyway, in saying that, people hear that many times and think, oh, well, that means he's not political. Talk about that term and and how you see it. Yeah. Um, The word word politics, of course, is etymologically related to the cognate term polis. And the word polis in Greek simply meant a a community or city-state. And politics, classically understood, was... Uh, the art of arranging the affairs of a community. You know, when we hear politics, we think governmental, nation, state, Republican versus Democrat, all the all the shenanigans that go on in trying to get power and the, Shut the governmental apparatus <laughs> and debt ceilings and all that kind of stuff. Um, but politics, classically understood, is just asking ourselves a question: How do we arrange the affairs of a community? And once we look at that classical definition. Uh, we realize that well, Jesus was all about politics because the, the you know some of the, many of the fundamental political questions, things like um, what do you how do how do you deal with uh, goods? Uh, how do you deal with uh, alienation and hostility? Mm. How do you deal with uh, enemies? How do you deal with marriage? Um, how do you work together to come to some sort of discernment of a truth and so forth. Those are all classic political questions. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus is very much teaching us uh, a way of life. Mm. Um, and so it's not politics as opposed to spirituality, but it is um, a spirituality that is inseparably political because wow. it's, it is a particular way of life. And so it's, it's really important that we not confuse that by saying, you know, well, Jesus is calling us to be a Democrat or Jesus is calling us to be a Republican. 
uh, it's, it's that Jesus is calling us to Jesus as Lord, which the early Christians saw as competing claim mm. to Caesar as Lord. Mm. You know, Jesus is Son of God, whereas uh, uh, in, in the Roman Empire, no, Caesar was Son of God. Yeah. Uh, and so these were competing mm. political claims. There's competing claims of allegiance. And Jesus taught a different way of life than did Caesar. Yeah. Uh, and so it's this competing ways of life uh, which are inseparably political that is kind of at the heart of the gospel message. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, talk about the nation state and why you see it as idolatrous. You know, you were talking earlier about how with the emergence of the nation state, for mm-hmm. instance, how um, our apologetic witness was really lost, and even before that, but yeah. but especially so since the emergence of the nation state. Yeah, um, well, uh, in, in Who is My Enemy, I talk some about, I, I play off of Bill Kavanaugh's work. Uh, you know, he's got that recent book out called uh, The Myth of Religious Violence, which yeah. is a great book. And uh, he's repetitive in the book, but he's repetitive, I think, because he really wants to drive home mm. the false assumptions we've had about, you know, so-called religion versus politics. Um, but, you know, one of the things he says in there is he says, well, you know, one, one way you could test the notion of um, authority is ask yourself the question: Well, what, what you know, what's some sort of ultimate-looking claim that someone could lay upon you? Hmm. And, and and he says, well, you know, one 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 such possible claim might be to to require us to kill somebody, you know, to take life of other other persons. Right. Is a is a very high demand. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, what we see is that um, in the contemporary world, it is the nation state alone that is seen as having authority to ki- to teach us to kill, require us wow. to kill. Wow! Because we all know you don't kill for religion. Right. 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 Um, but wow. instead, what's happened in the modern world is that no longer we kill for religion, but we kill for democracy. Wow! And we we kill for the nation state. And. So it raises this specter, you know, and so I was actually just this week in class on Wednesday, I was doing some stuff where um, we were talking about uh, just down here, just down the road in Murfreesboro, you know, we're right now in the middle of the sesquicentennial of the American Civil War in which, uh, you know, 600,000 people were killed. Yeah. In Murfreesboro, at the Battle of Stones River, you had the Confederates and the, the Union forces on the opposite side of the Stones River, and in those days they would have their regimental bands you know, music bands that would go along with them. And in the evenings, uh, they would uh, they would play music. And so here they were gathered near the, uh, New Year's Eve, and uh, the, the bands on opposite sides, the, the Yankees and the Confederate bands, started in this battle of the bands going back and forth. <laughs> if only that's where it yeah. stopped, right? Yeah. Well, and then what happened was that um, they got to one point of where one of them started playing Home Sweet Home. And the other side started playing Home Sweet Home together. And so in unison, they both played, you know, there's no place like home, Home Sweet Home. And so they go to sleep that night after having all longed together to go home. And they get up the next morning and start killing each other. Wow. Um, The same thing happened in World War I, but even more explicitly theological, where you have the Christmas Eve truces in World War I. And so you have these incredible stories about how the Allies and the you know on one side the Germans on the other in the fields in France, and they have the Christmas Eve truce, 
and um, on one, you know, the, the, the English began to hear across no man's land on the German side them, them singing um, a still a knock, still a knock. Mm. Mm. You know, so they know they're singing Silent Night, and so they start singing Silent Night on their side in English. And so on both sides they're singing Silent Night. Oh, my goodness. And then one of the Germans, the Kaiser, had sent a bunch of Christmas trees to the front. So one of the one of the Germans pops up a Christmas tree that's lit, you know, that got got from home, and puts it out in no man's land. And before you know it, people start coming out of no man's land. And they start playing soccer with each other. Oh my goodness! The next day on Christmas Day, they have mass together, and they exchange gifts with each other and chocolates and play and you know. And then the next day, they start killing each other again. <laughs> and and it's like that's that's an incredible. It's not merely a parable. It's a historical oh bearing witness wow. to the way in which the nation state has more authority over us than does the gospel. Wow. You know, we'll we'll stop for Christmas Day, but the day after Christmas Day, we Christmas do what the usual. nation state tells us to. Wow. Right. And so I think you know the notion of the the, the nation state as an as an idolatrous power is not just some silly thing theologians like to right. bitch about. You know, it's right. it's a, no, this is like this is for real. Yeah. You know? This is a real power mm. that the nation state has over us. Which really it's like that you talk about the secular and the sacred in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is a perfect demonstration of that dichotomy because here you have that one day of the year, Christmas, where all of a sudden, okay, we're gonna be sacred and we're going to we're going to envision yeah. the kingdom of God and hold hands and sing kumbaya, right, and then right, we go right, back right. to business as usual. That's right. Wow. That's right. Wow. That's so. That's so scary. Um, you you quote in the book. I'm going to quote you from the book. You say, "Whatever one's role, since Jesus is Lord of Lords and Lord over all powers, one must not set aside the teachings and way of Christ in service to that role. For some, this has meant non-participation in government." And for others, it has meant participation, but a staunch refusal to systematically set aside Jesus' way in the midst of such service. In in reading that, my question was, and this is a more personal question, but what does that mean for you? How does that play out in your life? Because I know as we were talking before we recorded, I, I know for myself something I struggle with is my complicity in the violence of the nation state. Is... Um, it's been so easy for me on the podcast to get on the podcast and to decry, you know, people sending their kids overseas to fight a war for oil. But simultaneously, I'm filling up my tank twice a week so I yeah. can go to work and I can, you know, and I'm paying my taxes, which all of that money that's going to, to fund all of the different wars on terror, so to speak. So what does that mean for, for us sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and I know I, I know there's a contextual element to that, but maybe maybe just some thoughts on that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't. Um, you know, I, I there was a, um, and I can't remember where it was, but at some point I remember Dorothy Day. Um, I think it was in an article that she wrote one time about. Uh, some governmental agency had sent her a check for some interest on some money that they wrote, and she sent it back because she didn't want to take interest. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a good enough person to not take interest, but um, but I remember her saying something, either commenting upon that in- instance or something. But at some point, she said something like, 
we're all complicit in the filthy rotten system. Yeah. And this is Dorothy Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all complicit in the filthy rotten system. And we are all complicit in it. There's no there's no kind of self righteous Nobody's hands are place free to of blood, stand. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Um and that's a scary, unfortunate reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um at the same time, I, I think still we're called to try to find some way to have some, some some sort of integrity or some sort of way of bearing witness to the kingdom of God. And, you know, that's that's going to look different for all of us, and we, we try to do the best we can yeah. in the context in which we find ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, teaching in a university, heck, I mean, there's, you know, complicitness all, <laughs> <laughs> all over that. Um and, uh, but nonetheless, we, we do the best we can to try to use the, what God has placed at our disposal to try to bear witness as broken and fragile as we all are. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of my own brokenness, yeah. but still trying to ask God day by day to help me do God's will as best to understand it. Yeah. Uh, I think we just have to keep getting up each day and, you know, trying to figure out what it looks like today yeah. to try to bear witness, try to find some sort of way to practice some faithfulness to the way of God. Yeah. Wow. Great stuff. I've got a book here that I could ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. I just yeah. thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a delight. Uh, thank you very much. Folks, thanks, thanks for the podcast and, and, uh, Thanks to all the all the listeners and uh, absolutely. If you're in Middle Tennessee, I, we hadn't we hadn't got to talk about our token show, but uh, oh yeah, we, yeah, we would be delighted for anybody in the Middle Tennessee area to come check out our token show. And uh, we've got a big show coming up at the Ryman Auditorium in uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving, which yeah. is always great fun. It's our kind of our theological variety show sort of thing. And that is it. Uh, TokenShow.com. 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 Yeah. You can follow on Facebook too. There. Yes, that's right. We're on yeah. Facebook at Token Show and so forth. We'll definitely we'll put a link to it on the on great. our Facebook page. That'd be great. Definitely. Yeah. Great, great stuff. I hated to cut that conversation off. Lee had somewhere that he had to be, so we had to we had to jump out early on that one and bail a little bit early. But I tell you, there was so much good stuff in this one. I've already listened to it twice myself. And that's not because I'm a narcissist, <laughs> but it's just because there's so much good stuff in there. What Lee's talking about with the apologetic witness of the church being the nonviolence of the church, I thought was just mind blowing. I mean, that has just, that has really stuck with me. And the, the conversation and the things that we talked about regarding the nation state, I've just really been delving into that a lot lately and just thinking about that. And one of the quotes that Lee had from the book that I didn't get to bring out in the podcast, but I wanted to make sure to share was this. He says, the myth of religious violence posits that the violence of religion is unacceptable but the violence of the secular state is either ignored or seen as legitimate. The violence of religion is always necessarily irrational, but the violence of the state is seen as necessary for peacemaking. Once this assumption is swallowed, the violence of the state is justified, overlooked, ignored, or even celebrated by Western Christians, all while believing that the solution is for Islam to become more Western.
The myth has gutted the Christian faith and turned the pitiful, almost lifeless creature into a lapdog for the state. And meanwhile, the Christian celebrates how wonderful it is that the state allows freedom for the Christian religion. Man, (laughs) I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's power packed in this book. Who is my enemy? You've got to get it if you get a chance. I know I recommend a ton of books on this program, but jump on Amazon or somewhere and grab Who is My Enemy. I looked on Amazon in the last couple of days, and I think this puppy is selling for like $5.78 or something like that. I mean, I don't know about you, but you can't spend a better $6 than this book. Let me just tell you, I paid 18 bucks for this book, I think back in like 2011. So you got to grab this book if you get a chance. Awesome, awesome stuff. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time. I look forward to many more conversations in the future and to really being able to pick your brain and your heart even more. Um, And Lee mentioned at the the end of our interview uh, about the token show. I think you guys would really get a kick out of that. If you're going to be in the Nashville area, the Middle Tennessee area, um, Lee does this from time to time. But this particular one in November is going to be at the Ryman. I think Vince Gill's going to be part of it. Uh, I believe the Sisters of Mercy, who actually had their their album, I think went to number one on the classical Billboard charts. I mean, awesome stuff. But anyway, it's basically like a theological variety show. Uh, Lee talks about all sorts of things, including the type of things that we were talking about in today's program on the Token Show. But it also is... Uh, Music is part of it. Um, I think interviews, there's just all sorts of things. I think you guys will really like it. I'm going to try and go if I get a chance. Um, Part of that's going to depend on babysitting. But if I can get a chance to, I definitely want to go check out The Token Show. Go check out tokenshow.com. Go to leecamp.com to check out his website. I think you'll really enjoy that. There's a lot of good material there. Some things for you to listen to, some things to read. Um, I think you'll really enjoy it. If you want to connect with us, go to facebook.com slash beyond the box. That's our Facebook page where you can interact with all sorts of different people from around the world talking about all sorts of different things. Start your own thread if you want. If you've got something on your heart or on your mind that you want to talk about with other people and kind of bounce it off somebody and see what they think, put it out there. Uh, We love to open up conversations in this community. You can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. That's where you'll find our website. You can comment on previous episodes or on this episode. You can leave ideas under the idea submission page. And if you look on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see a Call Me widget that includes the phone number um, that you can call and either leave a comment or an idea submission. Uh, That's just a really neat way of connecting with us. We'd love to play your voice on the program. You'll notice that this episode started with a listener, and we would love to start with you sometime. So if you get a chance to do that, just dial that phone number and say, hey, my name is such and such, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Um, That phone number, should you want it, is 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. 626-24-NO-BOX. So if you get a chance to do that, we'd love you to do so. Twitter.com slash BTB podcast is where you can hook up on Twitter with us. However you hook up, we just hope you do. This is a community. This is not a teaching podcast. It's not a lecture podcast. This is a community where we like to get some people on here that stimulate our thinking. And then we like to continue the conversation in the virtual world where we can all 
participate in the conversation. We can stretch each other, question each other, give some pushback. I hope you guys give me and Steve pushback because we always like to hear your thoughts. We we love to hear uh, that this program is blessing you, that it's helping you. We love those, but we also love the pushback. We love to hear people say, guys, I like what you said here, but... Uh, maybe you could clarify this or, or maybe you should think about this. It really sharpens us and helps us to learn. So you guys are awesome. I'm probably talking a mile a minute. I get a tendency to do that when I get excited. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Box. And until next time, this is Ray and my buddy Steve will be on soon. Hopefully we'll get to connect and do some podcasts for you in the very near future. Have a great rest of the week.